1: Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. I'm here with my colleague, David Tainter. Hey, Josh. Hey, we got a pretty... Pretty cool episode. Very cool episode here. today. Very yeah, we're gonna about this. we're gonna talk to uh, Preet Bharara. Oh, that's right. And he has a new book out. I mean, I assume I think everybody knows who Preet is. Uh, he he's he's become a, a a fixture fixture of television commentary uh, over the last couple of years. He also has his podcast, and now he has a new book out called "Doing Justice: A Prosecutor's Thoughts on Crime, Punishment, and the Rule of Law." You know, at at uh, at this point it's easy to for people to forget that before Preet was a big media star, he was the U.S. attorney right. in the in the <laughs> no Southern big, District no big of deal New York. There, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and before that, he uh, he worked on Capitol Hill as a I believe a Judiciary Committee staffer on the Senate side. Right, Worked for Schumer. right? Yeah, worked for Schumer. I think back in back in the Bush years. Um, I, I I don't. I, I think he was U.S. attorney in Manhattan for basically the whole Obama. That he sounds in. right, yeah. And then obviously he sort of, Trump was sort of like, I guess at first, like, oh, I'll keep him on, and then he fired him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and there's there's uh, still some questions about that, and and it's good that, that that well, we have a lot of questions for Preet, uh, and it's good, because he's right here. That's right. Josh, first, it's great to be here. Thank and you. And in the fine tradition of sucking up to your host, yes.
0: I want to say that it's a, it's a particular pleasure of mine, because I voraciously read... Way back at the start of TPM, maybe not the start, but close to the start, now twelve years ago, uh-huh. your coverage of the U.S. Attorney firings. Yes, yes, yes. And which, there's a which there's, I, investigate, which I investigated, which I investigated, and there's a part of that I'm going to want to come okay. back to. But I, I just you yeah. know, life goes full, full circle, and there's some irony in the fact that here I am, a fired U.S. Attorney, yes. who once upon a time sat on a panel of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate and investigated those things. And and you should, I'm sure, you know this from other people, but you should know also from the Point of view of the investigators on the matter that we read everything that you wrote. Well,
1: thank you. thanks. For some of thanks we, we uh, was, so, so thank you for the things we thought about. So, thank you for your thank you for your service, sir. <laughs> um, so let me let me and before I because I want to get to uh, we got to get to our, our just brief mention of our sponsor because that's yes. how we how we how we how we do this. But one of the things I I, I want to ask you about is in the U.S. Attorney's Office that you ran the Southern District of New York. I want I want to talk about the unique aspects of that office. But before we do, I want to quickly mention, have have you ever had Grady's cold brew iced coffee? Have you ever had it? It's, uh, you don't have to. But I will now. Well, it's, it's I'm not going to give you the hard sell, but it's it's, <laughs> it's actually really good. So here's, I'm going to, they sponsor our podcast. I'm going to uh, quickly mention them. Want to become a true office hero? Treat yourself and your coworkers to the best iced coffee in the country with a 42-serving bag-in-the-box from Grady's Cold Brew. Now shipping to 20 states on the East Coast, this coffee concentrate pours from a spigot just like boxed wine. So help yourself to cup after cup of Grady's signature New Orleans-style flavor, freshly brewed with chicory for just a hint of all-natural sweetness. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sGoldBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. All right, so we got... Wait, just like, yeah. like boxed wine... Well, you know, it's funny. It comes in bottles, but now they have introduced these boxes, and and but that's uh, a selling point, like boxed wine. Well, well no, <laughs> it it, of, I yeah. can yeah. cut this out. It, I don't it, know it, if you're sponsor. No, will no, like no, this no. Or not. it's okay. It's and okay. I'm they, they say it to yeah. Become a
0: sponsor on my podcast.
1: No, it's no. Believe me, they they are. They will not hold it against you. A few times I have said, I have sort of talked over that copy, where I've said <laughs> boxed wine is the cheap stuff, but this is actually really good stuff. But the but it but it's convenient. Um, yeah, it comes in bottles, but they have just introduced this because seriously, if you look over in that right there we have like nine of them right in these boxes yeah, ready to so go. yeah it looks like it but don't be fooled all right so southern district of new york so this is a this is the this is the office that you ran it is also the office that is now running much in the news yes much in the news so here's the thing we are in manhattan right now and sort of one of the shorthands is, i mean it's located in manhattan but obviously that particular office for a number of reasons not least of which New York is is the country's financial capital, all sorts. Of, it's covering a lot of stuff than just things that happen physically on the streets here in in the borough of Manhattan. Tell us about that office. What makes it different, unique versus all the other U.S. attorneys' offices around the country? Well, so so another reason why I think it might be interesting for people to read this
0: book is that a lot of the stories and the philosophy of that place and the culture of that place – that people are wondering about, you know, people are wondering, how's the Michael Cohen investigation going? What is the basis on which the Southern District of New York, SDNY, will decide to charge the president or not charge or not charge the president or charge his children or explore avenues of cooperation? Uh, the book is a lot about the DNA of that place mm-hmm. and how we thought about things and the tradition that I inherited from Mary Jo White and Robert Morgenthau and others going back in time. Uh, and how that tradition continues. you know, it, I inherited it, I hopefully maintained it, and it continued after. The Southern District of New York is, I think, a very special place for a lot of reasons. There are all these great public servants that people have never heard about. You know, You get to know the US attorney a little bit, and I did press conferences and news conferences, and people would hear me from time to time talk about cases and sentencings, but the real work of the office that I describe in the book is done by sort of unsung heroes, investigators, line prosecutors, FBI agents who just every day uh, pay pay heed to the admonition that we always gave, which is do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons all the time. We don't always get it right, but we we try really hard. And part of what I want to explain, and as a model for people in other professions as well, is how to be thoughtful about things and have people understand that we didn't just sort of, uh, on a whim, go and search people's homes or go up on a wiretap or decide to arrest someone. There was a lot of thinking and deliberation about whether or not it was the right thing to do and some people criticize us for being too soft some people in particular cases some people criticize us for being too harsh in other cases but i want people to understand that that place is about being thoughtful about it and about being deliberative about it the other thing about the southern district that i think uh has, has sometimes rankled other people in the justice department but i think is a good thing and a very important quality for justice is its independence mm-hmm. obviously it's part of the Department of Justice. It's one of a number of U.S. attorney's offices. But there's a vaunted, I think, important and welcome streak of independence there. Uh, in fact, jokingly, people prefer the Southern District of New York and alumni of the office, say it with a, a little bit of pride, call it the Sovereign District of New York. Now, obviously, you have to color within the lines and you got to make sure that you're you know, following Department of Justice guidelines. But the fearlessness with which I think we were taught and try to teach others in that office to go where the facts lead no matter what, no matter what the public says, no matter what the pressures are, no matter what the mob wants, no matter what a president thinks,
1: is incredibly important and I think is a model for how other people should think about
0: going about their duties if they have
1: a lot of discretion. Just just a, a kind of a, a granular detail, roughly how many lawyers work in that for that office
0: so depending on on hiring freezes uh, yeah, and, and yeah, budgeting. You know, give or take it's, a, the range. it's around 220 assistant u.s attorneys about 165 of them are criminal federal prosecutors we have a number of folks who are also on the civil side who who do civil rights investigations mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. sometimes do civil rights uh, criminal prosecutions but mostly do defensive work on the civil side so you have a core of about 165 mostly young idealistic top-notch lawyers who went to the best schools who have the best training who are foregoing six, sometimes seven figures to work at a place as a public servant mm-hmm. because they believe in both doing the right thing and, and aiding their community and keeping the public safe and doing justice, as the title, <laughs> the title mm-hmm. suggests, uh, and also learning about how to be a good lawyer, learning about how to be a good trial lawyer. And, and I think all the people there come there because they believe in being the kind of lawyer who only does what they believe is right. You know, most lawyers in the world, uh, criminal defense or otherwise, they represent a particular client, and sometimes a particular client wants them to make an argument that they don't believe to be right or true or accurate or meritorious, but they have to make it anyway. When you're a federal prosecutor in that office or in any, in any other office for that matter, the, the, the goal is never to make an argument that you don't believe is right and true. Mm-hmm. Now, Sometimes you won't like the harshness of, of, of some of the laws. Um, but then you can make decisions, and that's a little bit what I talk about in the book: is how and, you and decide. That's not
1: just a goal; that is actually that's the in mission. In terms of the ethical responsibility, yeah. you have to you, you you well you you tell me.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's the it's the mission of the place. You know, you make decisions all the time about what kinds of cases, as a category, make sense to bring, what kind of cases not to bring. And you know, we had some luxury in that office uh, because we had more resources than local DAs' offices. And knowing that the DA's offices were dealing with street crime and cases that they had to bring, you know, we had some choice in deciding, you know, how, how big the cases are that we were going to go after. You said earlier, you know, that we did cases that went beyond the streets of New York. And that's because I think we had a lot of vision. You know, we, I, you know, not only was I fired by Donald Trump, I've also been banned from Russia by Vladimir Putin because of a notorious arms trafficker we prosecuted, Victor Boot, who we end up getting extradited from uh, Thailand. Uh, because he was engaging in all sorts of nefarious activity, mm-hmm. we brought cases against the FARC, uh,
1: drug traffickers around the world, terrorists around the world. So let me let me ask yeah. you this: With someone like Max Boot, what is Victor Victor Boot. Victor Boot? Max Boot, Max Boot God, is coming. I'm, I'm having Washington a hard Post. time today. I'm really I'm really struggling. If I
0: prosecuted Max <laughs> yeah, Boot, I could yeah.
1: probably have the ban lifted, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and I could go to exactly, Russia again. Ex- exactly, exactly. Do him Max Boot, do, getting,
0: getting a free plug? Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Exa-
1: exa- <laughs> God, I'm, I'm really struggling today. Um, on someone like Victor Boot, what is the jurisdictional hook that you as the as the U.S. attorney in the Southern District get to say we get to prosecute him as opposed to something out of Maine Justice or out of Los Angeles or whatever?
0: Yeah, so f- for you to have the ability to prosecute anyone, some part of the crime has to have occurred in your district, which is the Southern District of New York, which consists of Manhattan, the Bronx, and, and a number of other counties up north. Uh, or with respect to certain kinds of terrorism prosecutions if there's ha- or harm directed to you know to the to the country or to the district and with certain kinds of terrorism prosecutions uh, if you don't have that there's statutes that allow the person to be prosecuted to the district where they're first brought so you know th- there were cases that we brought Victor boot obviously was engaged in activity some of which happened to the southern district of New York and it can be something as little as driving through the district. It can be something as little as one transaction being wired through a bank account.
1: I was wondering does does the fact that this is the sort of I'm not sure if it's the world financial capital anymore but certainly the, the national financial capital that that gives that office a lot of a lot of reach because yeah. kind of everybody's got to have some transaction that that goes through yeah, because, a bank based in New York. Yeah, because the, the law does not require that
0: the case be brought unlike in some civil contexts, that the case be brought in the district where there's the most activity. There just has to be some activity. And it was the case that we brought cases against, uh, you, know, brought, you know, prosecutions against people who lived in other cities and in other states because we had the, the resources, we had the vision, or we had the cooperators, or we had a piece of evidence that led us to those other folks. So sometimes, you you know, you begin pulling the thread and then it leads you to people, you know, all over the world, all over the country. And you know, we once prosecuted somebody who was attempting, who was plotting to assassinate the Saudi ambassador to the United States. And, uh, you know, another office had been working on it. And then the case was given to us um, because of our expertise doing national security work. And there was a confidential informant involved. And one of the ways in which the confidential informant and others received payment was through uh, a wire transfer which travel through new york so that allowed us to have jurisdiction
1: over the case so, so one thing, there's so many so many points i want to i want i want to get at I'm one, here. one one thing one thing you bring up and this is something that has come up and and uh, well come up in the michael cohen case that and it, it seems to have been one of the things that got him the sentence that, that he got was that he was willing to talk about some things but there was lots of stuff that he was not willing, for whatever reason, was not willing to talk about. And you say that this is something that is, I don't know if it's unique, but something that is particular to the SDNY, that the sort of you know office policy, institutional approach or whatever, is that if you're going to cooperate, you have to discuss everything you have ever done, everything that you know about. You can't selectively cooperate. What is that about? So that's something... That's, I think, a little
0: peculiar to the Southern District of New York, I think, in a good way. Uh, maybe my favorite chapter in the book is called Evocatively Snitches, uh, and it's about cooperation and mm-hmm. how it works. And it's something that everyone has been trans- has been transfixed by because they look at Paul Manafort, who tried and failed. They look at Michael Cohen, who tried and has succeeded partially and may still succeed with the Southern District of New York. It's a fascinating thing what causes someone to flip what the psychology is what the philosophy is what the morality is and I tell a lot of stories about the sometimes it's the case that you get people to flip because you give them the food that they want that they missed from their homeland and I mm-hmm. have cool stories about that with respect to the particular policy in the southern district you know some time ago long before I got there and I inherited this practice and policy we made the decision that for for ethical reasons for fairness reasons and for pragmatic reasons that we would not Use as a cooperator, somebody who we did not believe confessed all his sins. So you come in, you're caught on a robbery, and you say, and you have reason to believe, they obviously, that's not they're not the unluckiest person in the world, and it's the first time they committed mm-hmm. a robbery and they were caught. I mean, that happens sometimes, but it's very rare. Right. And you have a guy come in saying, I'm not going to tell you about any other things that I did. That's a bad witness on the stand. That looks like a witness who has gotten... Uh, a freebie and a get out of jail free card. So it's not good on cross examination. It looks like you're getting into bed. The government is getting into bed with somebody who's who's pretty terrible. And I understand the utilitarian need in cooperation generally, notwithstanding what the president says about mm-hmm. flipping because of the predicament he's in. Mm-hmm. But for that person to give you something, someone higher up, because it looks like the person has not come around. And I think the better cooperating witnesses are people in our view who have looked, who look like, and and have. Uh, give us reason to believe have turned the corner. And they're like, "You know what? I used to be a criminal. I'm not anymore." And I told, and it's very powerful by the way in the courtroom, when somebody is asked the question on direct examination, something like, "And how many robberies did you commit?" Well, the one that, you know, I was I was arrested on, and then how many others? Well, I did these other four robberies. And did we know about that? You have to be careful about how you phrase it for evidentiary reasons. But how did we come to know about that? Because you, because I told you and you didn't know at first. And it seems in some ways bizarre that you would get people to admit things that the government couldn't have otherwise proven. But it works because the culture in the Southern District is for judges to understand that they, they should give some credit to mm-hmm. somebody who has come clean on a lot of things. By the way, the, the other stories I tell in the book uh, are about situations where People confess to other things that they did because they wanted to get signed up as a cooperator, which gives them a great benefit, and they solved cold cases, or they got other people. There's there's a story in the book that's one of my favorites and most moving about how because of this policy of, of having people confess to all the things they've done, and it's a, it's a longer story, and you'll have to be able to buy the book and, mm-hmm. and see. You know, a number of people who had been convicted of a homicide they didn't commit were exonerated after 17 years in prison. Because there were a couple of cooperators that one of our investigators, John O'Malley, talked to, and they ended up confessing, due to this policy, to a crime that actually other people had been convicted for. So it, it doesn't always work. It probably means that in some cases,
1: uh, cooperation escapes us. But but people know we, we drive a hard line on that. So that – okay. So Because that – that, I have my own suspicions about why Cohen – you know, what happened there? Because What of, are they? Well, his – I mean, everybody beats up rightly on Trump for going after his father-in-law, but his father-in-law—I don't know if it was in the, in you know in in the Eastern District uh, or SDN—he pled out to a money law. I mean, a money laundering uh, charge back in the early '90s. He's he he has lots of kind of uh, Russian emigre underworld yeah. connections. And um, a lot of our reporting says that kind of, you know, Cohen. Where did he get his money to invest? All this kind of stuff. He's from that place. He's so, trying to protect people. Yes, I, I, and, and and you get that. All, look, you get that all the time. You know, I had
0: cases, some of which I describe in the book, where you're really, really counting on this person to cooperate. You know, and, and as you're seeing with the Mueller investigation, often prosecutors begin sort of low. And, you know, for want of a better word, I'll use the law enforcement, you know, you squeeze somebody, mm-hmm. they've committed a crime, and they take you up the chain. But sometimes there's a there's a bottleneck, and the, the, the person won't flip on the person above. And sometimes it's out of fear. Sometimes it's because they have other things that they don't want to talk about. But, uh, excuse me, on the other hand, I've also been in the room where someone has been uh, charged with a, with a homicide or someone's been charged with a gun crime, and they end up confessing not after being berated but after explaining to them that they're not going to get the benefit of cooperation because we have this reason to believe that you have that you killed somebody because we and we wouldn't at that moment maybe eventually we'd be able to prove it we wouldn't at that moment be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you committed the homicide and i've been in the room where people break down in tears and confess to these other things and you know for some people it's cathartic you know there are, there are hardened criminals who who go to their grave never admitting anything but even really serious criminals like uh, captains in the in, in the organized crime families. I tell the story of, uh, of 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 Mikey Scars, who was a high-ranking member of the Gambino crime family, who decided went back and forth for a period of time, deciding whether or not to cooperate. My colleagues prosecuted him. Even people like that who have lived a life of crime, who are in a crime family, will sometimes want to get the the the, the you know the monkey off their back mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and confess and move on with their lives and go into witness protection or whatever.
1: I mean I think in his case it seems to me that how much he's he knows a lot about that world I'm sure of that maybe he didn't do the bad acts but I I and it, it's his father-in-law he's you know his wife yeah. so you you upend your whole family right he's in that so that's that was that was my uh But there are some people thought. yeah
0: who will throw their parents their father-in-law their best friends <laughs> I tell another story about about a a man who wore a wire on, on his best man and for whom he was going to be the best man right. because he decided, I can't go to jail. I just had a, I just had a kid. Right. My own right. nuclear family comes first. So you have all types.
1: Well, you know what? It, uh, this is a, a random association. You had one episode of your podcast where there was this guy who committed a relatively small financial crime. I think he did two or three years. Three years, yeah. Yeah, but he came back and sort of that was, that was a great—basically this guy, and he wanted to come back, and I think at some level he wanted to show that he had reformed himself. Redemption. He, yeah, Stories yeah. of
0: redemption are incredibly fascinating to people. And when you talk about crime and punishment, as I do in the book, it's all about people who are redeemable or not redeemable. And it was an extraordinary— podcast for me stay tuned with Preet. that's my plug mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, i'm gonna play a lot of things not just coffee on the show my friend you can you, and, you the, <laughs> the stage is open <laughs> the podcast it's like it's like boxed wine yes my podcast but good for but quality but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for yeah quality. you know what i mean yeah and you know the thing that also people need to remember prosecutors also and it sounds like a tautology but everyone's a human being Defendants are human beings. Judges are human beings. Prosecutors are human beings. Witnesses are human beings. And people forget that when they exercise their discretion and when they try to think how they go about doing things. And so I had this gentleman who had been convicted by my office of insider trading crimes who wrote me a letter out of the blue and wanted to have a cup of coffee to show the, the person, and I never met him, and I didn't prosecute the case. You know, I had folks in my office who did. I was familiar with the case. And he wanted, he wanted in part... To say to the person whose name was on his indictment, because my name goes on all the indictments, right, that he had recovered and he was making something of himself, and he was going to try to be a lawyer again. He had been a lawyer convicted and disbarred. Can you do that? I thought that was kind of final. um, I think there are ways to petition to get back. I think it's very difficult. And that may have been part of the motivation. And I said, well, I, I got one better for you. Instead of having a cup of coffee, why don't you come on and tell your story? And a lot of people have said that's mm-hmm. you know maybe the most moving episode we've had because you have the guy on the other side of the V. You know, I represent the United States versus this person. And you know, when you have some remove from the events, and I have some removed from my
1: time in office, two years, you can be more thoughtful about how you went about doing the job. So this is, okay. So there's one thing about now before uh, you mentioned this at the at the at the beginning of the episode. But before you were a U.S. attorney, you worked on Capitol Hill. I did. And you were involved in, the, in this cluster of investigations around the U.S. attorney firings. Now, there's part of that investigation that is not uh, exactly on those firings, but had to do more broadly with, with uh, uh, the Justice Department under, under President Bush. And it had to do with James Comey. And this this now famed uh, uh, hearing. hearing, May fifteenth, two thousand and seven. Right. So here here's the thing. So this is this hearing, which a lot of pe- this is the sort of the, the the hospital bed, John Ashcroft. John Ashcroft had pancreatitis, yeah. and he was uh, you know not able to do the the job
0: of attorney general. And so for a period of time, Jim Comey, back then, who was much less famous than he is now was the acting attorney general for all purposes. Because he was
1: deputy. Because he was that, deputy, right. yeah.
0: And while Ashcroft was in the hospital. I.e.,
1: basically Rosenstein. He had Rosenstein's Correct. current or until a few days ago position. Exactly right.
0: And and John Ashcroft was quite sick. And and you know who the FBI director was? Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller, right. Robert Mueller. Right, so cast of characters. The band is back together, although in different spots. Um, and there was something, you know, that people refer to as the terrorist surveillance program. And at some point, Uh, Jim Comey and others in the department thought that they could not legally reauthorize it because it posed legal problems. And when every 45 days, I guess, they were supposed to have it renewed and reviewing the legal authority to do it, Comey said, I can't sign it. And so, oh, by the way, you know who the White House counsel was at that time? Alberto Gonzalez. uh, Right, right. Who who was AG
1: by the time this larger Uh, scandal blew up.
0: Correct. So Andy Card, who was the chief of staff in the White House, and uh, Alberto Gonzalez, who was the White House counsel, decided, you know what the hell with you, Jim Comey? They decide they're going to bypass him, and they went to the hospital, figuring like he's still
1: kind of conscious. We'll get, we'll yeah, get like John Ashcroft, to sign s- off. Sign, sign yeah.
0: here, just sign here. Right. Meanwhile, and and you know, Jim Comey tells a very dramatic story, but I think it's all it's all true. He calls up Bob Mueller, and then they race to the hospital. So there's a there's a, there's a standoff in the hospital room with John Ashcroft. I think John Ashcroft's wife was there. He has pancreatitis, and there's
1: a question about so whether he's or not like he's gonna conscious, sign. but he's not in good shape. Correct. Basically, right. Yeah.
0: Right. Um, I think it's a very painful disease. And according to Jim Comey's telling to jaw-dropping audience in a Senate committee hearing room back in 2007, talking about these events from 2004, he says, John Ashcroft said, I'm not the Attorney General. That's the Attorney General. You got to go through him. What's amazing about that, that people forget, is I, I believe that was March 10th of 2004. on March, and, and so there was a standoff and it wasn't clear what was going to happen. And the White House personnel Andy Card and Alberto Gonzalez go back to the White House. And Jim Comey says that he prepared his letter of resignation that day. Uh, He has said, I don't know if Mueller has confirmed this, that Bob Mueller also prepared a letter of resignation and a bunch of other folks of high rank at the Department of Justice. And should they all resign, it would have been an unbelievable moment in American history. So this lingers overnight. And as I recall it, the next morning, do you know what happened in the world? It was March 11, 2004. And bombs went off in Madrid. Oh, Terrorism, right, it was a, right, the right, worst right, terror right. attack since 9-11 in the Western world. And 191 people are killed. So you would think that's the moment when the you know, sort of hawks on national security mm-hmm, mm-hmm. would say, you guys got to back down. And they didn't back down. And eventually the president himself met with Comey and Mueller. And they, they either modified uh, or halted that program on the legal quarrel about it right so
1: here okay so here's my it is a very interesting story in itself and then the hearing a few a few years later my interest in this for for our purposes right now is that jim comey as you say has become a huge figure in american politics for all the reasons we understand and my sense you know he was he stuff he did in 2016 why and how he was fired in 2017 my interest in him is that I think some of the things that Comey did wrong in 2016, I don't mean wrong, like breaking the law, I mean just poor judgments, were in part, I think, because of the the sort of the myth of James Comey that I think has a great deal of truth to it. But you can also kind of get taken, you can also get fall in love with your own myth and have it lead you astray sometimes in any case with that with that hearing my understanding of this and i think somewhere there's an article that kind of went went through this that you know committee staff are research investigations and hearings and whatever and my understanding of this is that this story came up in the in that process and it was you who thought wait a second This is, like, you saw the cinematic quality. You saw how powerful this was. (laughs) Well, what
0: happened was, so we were investigating the U.S. attorney firings, and we were investigating the politicization of various things in the Justice Department, including, among other things, that uh, at the behest of someone named Monica Goodling, who's faded from memory, uh, who's high up in the Justice Department, line-level attorneys... Honors program attorneys, even interns, were being screened for their political or ideological view, which is not right mm-hmm. and is and is and is against policy and I think against the law um, that regulates the Justice Department. So, in the context of that, we were having hearing after hearing, and I decided that I would ask Senator Schumer, who for whom I worked and who was the chair of the subcommittee, to ask Jim Comey to come testify because the House was conducting a parallel investigation of the same things, and he testified there. And I have a relationship with Jim; I used to work for him. He was U.S. Attorney when I was a line prosecutor and have him talk about the quality of the US, U.S. attorneys who had been fired. Because remember, one of the issues was, it wasn't that U.S. attorneys were fired. You can do that, and you have no recourse. I was fired. I have no recourse, and I don't, I'm don't. i not bitter about it. I, I, I had a very good run and a very good life. But when asked the question, why were they fired, the Justice Department folks said, well, they were terrible. They were terrible at their jobs. So we're like, well, let's see if that's true. And one of the things we did was, was ask for their personnel records, and it turned out, in six of the seven cases, that was an absolute lie. So. The initial reason to ask Jim Comey to testify was to talk about the quality of these U.S. attorneys and whether or not the Justice Department was lying about them. And I had read stories that suggested that there had been some kind of confrontation a la the hospital visit, but it had never been fleshed out. And then in the conversation with him on the phone, I was asking him about things related to the U.S. attorneys, and I asked about the hospital visit, and to my you know, somewhat surprise, he said, yeah, I'm prepared to talk about that. And then he told me the story. And basically the way he told the story to me on the phone is the same way he told it several days later, which is, is a tribute either to the fact that Jim Comey as is a very good storyteller mm-hmm. um, and or that he had told that story a bunch of times before and knew it well. So it wasn't the first time he was telling it.
1: Do you think, in in, in your sense of that, do you think during that conversation, when you sort of opened the door to that topic— in his mind was sort of like, oh man, this is a good story. I, I know this is a great story and I'm going to blow Preet away or, or... Oh, I don't think so. Look, I, yeah. I, you know, I, don't, I don't know. I don't mean we, deceptive we, about yeah, it. We, I mean, just, you know. Look,
0: cool. stories are important. Mm-hmm. By the way, I, I asked him, I said, why didn't you testify about this stuff in front of the house where you just were a few weeks ago? And you know what the answer was? No one asked? No one asked. Yeah. So always ask. Um, I have a couple stories in the book about how sometimes you got you to ask every question and you're not... Like unlike in Congress... In the rest of the world you're not limited to a five-minute session ask all your questions i mean we're limited here because it's Mm -hmm, a podcast mm and we don't have more coffee to sell apparently but look i think i I think i think he thought look i I, we never talked about it i tried to maintain you know he's a friend but i tried to maintain some distance from his motivations like this Mm -hmm. my, my job as a staffer was to get information out and i think he thought this was important for people to know because remember at the time he's telling the story at the time we're doing this investigation, the person whose judgment is in question was then U.S. Attorney General of the United States of America, Alberto Gonzalez. He'd, who had been White House Counsel. Who had been White House Counsel and who participated in what Jim Comey, I think, correctly thought was an end run around process and and possibly an end run around the Constitution. And so his testimony came, Jim Comey's testimony came after we had had earlier I – mean, I remember all these because this is all I did 24 hours a day back then – April 19th or 20th of that year, Alberto Gonzalez had testified – um, catastrophically, in front of the committee, mm-hmm. showing he didn't really have a handle on what was going on. Um, th- there had been a, a you know a high profile series of resignations from the Department of Justice. I mean, th- this was the biggest news around. Yeah, it was a, bit, it was the a big. The Deputy Attorney scandal, General yeah. stepped down. The Chief of Staff of the Attorney General stepped down. The Associate Attorney General stepped down. All sorts of people were implicated in just you know whether or not it was um, unethical. There was there was a lack of judgment that was pervasive, and I think. And much
1: of it politicization, bringing yeah, politicization into the process of Yeah, and of I think, I think Jim,
0: Jim wanted, he had the opportunity, and when prompted, wanted to be able to tell the story that sort of shed some light on how some of the people, including the, the one at the top, thought about these things, and it was important for the country to know.
1: So- what is your sense from, 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 from knowing Jim Comey, from that experience with him, uh, from, from working with him when you were at the, when you were a line attorney at, at, at SDNY? There's the, that kind of mini speech he gave in July of 2016, and then there's that letter. What do you and you get into sort of like it's a very hard position for a prosecutor or you know, in a sense, the FBI, you know, being in that position? in a period of great politicization. What is your take on why those things happened?
0: So I've thought hard about this, and I have, um, actually, first of all, I like Jim Comey. I admire Jim Comey. I think Jim Comey is a great leader. I think there have been a lot of lies told about Jim Comey, and I think Jim Comey tells the truth, but he's a human being like anyone else. And sometimes you're put in an impossible situation. He describes it as, you know, I was in an impossible situation. there was door A and door B, and they were both terrible, and I picked the one that I thought was less bad. I think you can reasonably disagree with that. Um, especially in hindsight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Everyone was operating under this impression that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And so you're looking at things through that lens, and it turns out everyone was wrong about that and mistakes in, of judgment were made. I make the point in the book about how difficult it is for a prosecutor uh, when there's a lot of public interest in why you haven't brought a case It's very easy to judge a prosecutor's decision when they charge someone with a crime. Then there's a process, there's a judge, there's a defense lawyer assigned, it's an open proceeding, it's a free country, and people can say, well, that's a nonsense argument, or that's an overcharged case, or you lose and there's a jury and it decides. Sometimes you investigate something for a long time and you don't bring the case. And the public sometimes doesn't have faith in the fact that those were deliberate and well thought out decisions. Part of the the reason for the book is to have people understand how much deliberation goes on. And it can be tempting when you're worried and you care a lot about your institution, which I, you know, I I think Comey's heart was in the right place. What he was seeing, and we haven't talked about this, what he was seeing was the FBI being denigrated and the suggestion being made that they were making political decisions. And so even though there wasn't a charge against And Lurie political Clinton,
1: decisions defending her or, or going easy on her. Yeah,
0: and, and, and treating her in a different way from other people. And so the temptation is always there in good faith to explain to the public, no, no. Um, there wasn't a case here because no one else in the same situation has ever been prosecuted, and fairness requires that you treat people the same, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican, whether they're a secretary of state or, or a candidate for president or an ordinary citizen. And he made not a bad case, but the problem with that is if you do it once, then you're expected to speak again. And once you speak, then you're expected to speak to correct things that may cause the first speak – the first speak – the first speech. Right, right, I'm <laughs> right, an right. immigrant. Uh, to cause the first speech to be, to be somewhat inaccurate and you get into tr- and you get into trouble and i think it's an object lesson for a lot of people that you know you don't bring a case against someone and the public is clamoring and they think that it's that's selective uh, prosecution or selective non-prosecution and you know what you have to do as a prosecutor the less you have to eat it right right and, and i've had to eat it and that just that's the way it is because to do the other causes a lot of problems too
1: yeah at least at least again my as a as a as an outside observer my sense was that I, again, I I largely buy into that kind of myth, and I mean myth in the sense not of something that is false, a a sort of a narrative about who a person is and so forth. Um, and I think needing to just not say anything when everybody's saying, "Oh, you're sucking up to Hillary Clinton," yeah. and, and was, it's hard was, to take. Yeah. It's really hard to take, particularly if you view yourself as a good person and you view your institution.
0: As having made decisions based on the merits, mm-hmm. look there are all sorts of things people will say. It's, it's it's easier for the prosecutor to you know justify an action when it's a when it's a when it's an action as opposed to not taking an action. I, I keep going back to that. It, it's really really hard because you know you want people to have faith in the institutions. And by the way, this is the worst time ever for people having faith. And and so this whole debate about the Mueller report is is going to be incredibly fascinating. Because on the one hand, people are making the argument that, you know, you don't want to do the same thing that Jim Comey did and have derogatory information about people who were not charged, let's say Jared Kushner or other people, in a publicly available report because that's, that's committing the same offense and the same ethical lapse um, of sort of slandering people who you decided you weren't able to charge. And we don't do that in this country. But against that is a public that's going to be very, very uh, queasy about Decisions not to prosecute based on the reports they see in the press, some of which are true and some of which probably are exaggerated. Both of those interests are legitimate and valid. And how you strike the balance, I think, is fascinating. And in the last chapter of the book, I describe exactly. No, I'm kidding.
1: (laughs) I say the formula for figuring that out. So, I mean, and and, uh, I I get part of the issue there is, is that this is why you need big congressional investigations. It may be why you need some statutory obligation to for Someone in a special prosecu a special counsel in this case, to in addition to just saying, "Oh, here's why I prosecuted and why I didn't, here's kind of more broadly what we found happened, and we don't have that, and that's sort of one of the uh, challenges right now. One thing before we're coming to the to the end of our time, so Last question is, and, and for our listeners, we are recording this uh, at the end of the first week of March. We're going to play—this is going to run a bit later, so possibly other things Who will knows have happen. what will happen? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we, we may be talking to a different world, but at least in the world as of March 7th, uh, 2019, what, as a prosecutor, as an observer, are you seeing about this investigation, about where it's going, anything about the Mueller probe that you think— People are not seeing or not talking about enough. What is what is the extra insight you have?
0: You know, I, I'm loath to predict, especially when I know that I'm going to be proven wrong <laughs> in a few <laughs> weeks. I think the most interesting thing of, about all this, and that's a little bit because of parochial pride and interest, I guess, is what's going on in the Southern District of New York. Right. And the fact that you have a former lawyer of the president who has basically said that the president has committed a crime and the Southern District has endorsed it. And a judge took a plea allocution also essentially endorsing that. So that's something to watch. Um, I don't know if if Mueller will prepare a report that goes to hundreds and hundreds of pages that lays waste to all sorts of people for all sorts of bad conduct, or if it will be minimalist. I'm prepared to believe that either is possible. The stuff that I'm uh, sort of puzzled about that has not come to light in any Sort of um, in-depth way is the whole, and this is another sort of parallel parochial interest. Is all the business with Michael Flynn and Turkey, and the potential rendering back to Turkey of this person who is President Erdogan's nemesis, Fatulla Gulen, and part of the reason I have this interest is because um, I've also been uh, trashed in, in, in by President Erdogan in Turkey because of another case we brought against a gold trader named Reza Zarab. Right. But it seemed to and, me based that on the one, reporting— doesn't
1: that one kind of dovetail? I can't remember. I, I think know. so. I,
0: so there seems to have been a lot of conduct on the part of Michael Flynn, who is still cooperating and met a number of times with the special counsel's office that we talked about in the country some time ago, and people have forgotten about it because there's so many other news cycles, that, that I still got to believe that there are some shoes to drop there, whether or not there's an additional charge. But Michael Flynn was engaging in in really wacky conduct on behalf of the Turkish government to do things that include you know sending somebody who's a legal permanent resident in the in the United States to you know a bad fate back in Turkey extrajudicially um and 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 making it seem like he could do it because he was about to become a national security advisor. And money went back and forth, and I think lies were. T- and we haven't seen a lot about that.
1: And weren't there, weren't there actually reports? I mean, it's one thing if you do sort of like an extrajudicial rendering as the government. That has its own set of problems. Yeah. But it seemed like they were at least speculating about doing it before they were in the government. Well, I don't you know how he be, would have been able, to, well, that, <laughs> I, been able to do that. Kidnapping, you know. Yeah. Um, but, it would, but it's yeah.
0: bad stuff, and we haven't had a reckoning about it. And that's been in the back of my mind. Like, what what is it that they found about that, and are we going to learn about it? And I hope we do.
1: Well— uh, let me, let me before, as you mentioned before, selling coffee, we have to remind our, our listeners that uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Ready to give it a swirl. Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. All right, so the book is, uh, I believe, out in the middle of March. March 19th. 8th, but it's March available 19th.
0: For, for pre-order now, which doesn't matter to your listeners because this
1: uh, is pre-recorded. Exactly, but, it's, but it'll <laughs> still it's, be, it be on sale. either pre or, or, or post. Post, it'll it'll be available. It's called Doing Justice: A Prosecutor's Thoughts on Crime, Punishment, and the Rule of Law. Great! Thank you so much. Thanks for, for having on. me. I this appreciate is, it. Was a lot of fun. Thank awesome. You. Talk to you soon.